Few things can cause as much gut-wrenching emotion as going through a divorce. For sure, other there are lots of other traumatic experiences that you can just feel in your body, like the death of a spouse or a child or suffering abuse, and I don't mean to diminish any of those. But divorce has its own awfulness to it. Someone you thought you, someone you thought you would build a life with turned out to not be the kind of person you thought they were. And conversely, you probably turned out to not be the kind of person they thought you were. There could be such a toxic stew of betrayal, rage, fear, and grief, you can feel it in your bones. If you've experienced that kind of hurt, you have an idea of the context of our reading from, Ex from Exodus today. Because the marriage was over before it began between God and God's people. In chapter 19, God had called the people to be God's treasured possession out of all the nations, a priestly people and a holy nation. He sealed this calling by giving the people the Ten Commandments from Sinai's peak. He gave them to them directly. The people agreed to keep the Lord's commandments. They say to Moses, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses returns to the mountain to receive the tablets and further elaboration on what these commandments entail. Because after all, you can say, uh, don't steal, don't kill, but sometimes you need a little bit of guidance on just what exactly those things mean. So Moses goes back up the mountain, and he is up there at the very, very long time. Keeping the promise to do everything that the Lord has said is much more difficult than they anticipated. Eight chapters later, from 24 to 32, the promise is broken. Remember what it was like when you lost your parents in the grocery store as a child? What that felt like? The anxiety, the fear behind it? Now in an era where we do a lot of our shopping online, I don't know if my daughter will quite have the same experience, uh, but that deep-seated anxiety in your gut even if your parents had said, wait right here, you might have been so anxious that you got up and tried to find them. And that's what happens with the Israelites. They're so anxious about what's happened to Moses, their mediator between themselves and God, that they want some other means of securing God's presence. So they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make a representation of God for them. This is where the golden calf comes in. As you'll recall, this is a violation of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Not only was Israel not to have any other gods, they weren't to make representations of God either. God is furious, lambasting them as a stiff-necked people. Moses is angry. The aftermath is a disaster. The covenant is broken before it even began. God vows to no longer accompany the people to the promised land. Instead, sending an angel with them. The marriage between God and the people begins with infidelity and brokenness. But it can't be left there. So Moses spends a long time asking God 
to change God's mind. The audacity, right? Asking God to change God's mind about accompanying them. Moses intercedes for the people, asking God to renew the covenant between God and people. And God does so. God renews the covenant with them. And to have a more consistent place for God's presence to dwell with the people, for their sake, of course. God commands the building of a tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Moses begins asking for offerings from whoever is of a generous heart. That, that's the actual wording. Notice what happens. Moses doesn't ask for a particular percentage of income or a particular shekel amount. He doesn't compel or beg or cajole. He asks though for those with a willing heart to give for the work. And the people respond. They give tremendously. Much of chapter 35, 35 through the end of Exodus, may, may be a long list of stuff, uh, but it's here in 35, it's a recitation of what they gave for building the tabernacle. The Hebrew uses the term that they're wise-hearted men and women who contribute their craft in building. And something remarkable happens. In chapter 36, they receive so much for the tabernacle that Moses tells the people to stop giving. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the congregation, the congregation saying, we've received enough, thank you. You can stop now. This is the conclusion of the first successful capital campaign. And the people gave, not because they were afraid, not because they were worried about the future, but because they were grateful. They were grateful that God, who was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, had received them back. They'd been given another chance. By God's grace, a stiff-necked people was beginning the, tran the transformation into a wise-hearted community. Stiff-necked, we can understand, it's not too far off from our idiom, hard-headed. A stiff-necked community is riddled with fear, falling back in the same patterns of behavior over and over again. Even after God shows the people signs and wonders, even after God speaks to the people directly, they all too easily fall back into destructive patterns. Their anxiety causes them to demand some other means of accessing God than the one they have, Moses, leading to the golden calf disaster. We can make similar mistakes. While none of us, I think, are clamoring to build a golden calf, that would be interesting, anxiety, there, there can be anxiety, anxiety about the mortgage, about the costs of the work of the gospel here, about the general future in an unhinged world. There's just this low-level hum, well, it's increasing now, of anxiety about the state of the world. Our own giving, meant to be an expression of joy and gratitude, can instead become motivated by fear, resentment, and God forbid, despair. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
And the scripture shows us that it isn't that way when God's people really take this free, open, uh, giving out of gratitude to heart. The community is called to be a wise-hearted community. What does it mean to be wise-hearted? Our translation uses the word skillful to translate the Hebrew term, which usually refers to skill with one's hand in weaving or in building craftsmanship. Bezalel and Oholiab have such skill, as do the women who spin fine thread for the tabernacle. But the Hebrew word wisdom means so much more. It reminds me of Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. As wisdom is much more than knowing things, far more than knowing things, spiritual gifts are much more than healings and speaking in tongues. Both terms are so broad. God is the giver of wisdom, of skill, of spiritual gifts, in whatever way to benefit the people of God. When the people recognize this, they are at their best. Fear is extinguished. Their giving honors God and their community because it is done out of gratitude. Such a community is truly wise-hearted. Such grateful giving shows up in our gospel reading, too. Like Moses, Jesus doesn't condemn, cajole, or beg. He just says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. He just shows up for dinner. Which he does a lot, by the way, in Luke's gospel. He just makes himself a dinner guest. And Zacchaeus is moved not by fear or resentment, but by gratitude. Of all people, Jesus has come to his home. Jesus has acknowledged Zacchaeus as a member of the community. Even after he excommunicated himself from the community due to his profession, being a tax collector. It is because he has been received back, as all of Israel was received back that he gives because of grace. Grace always comes first. So I leave you with this today. It's all about gratitude in our giving and in our living. When we recognize that God receives us back as God's children every single day, that gratitude grows in us. And that is reflected in all we do, not just in our giving. As we continue celebrating God's generosity, God's grace to us, God continue to grow that seed of generosity that God placed within us. God help us to reflect God's own generosity well. Thanks be to God. Amen.